Hello, I'm Dr. Joseph Kern, and welcome to A Radiant Moment. Get ready to receive helpful insights and a relevant word for today's world. For service times, live streaming, and location, visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Now, let's listen in as we bring you a powerful and dynamic word for your life today. This is A Radiant Moment with Dr. Joseph Kern. So let's put our hands in our eyes and let's ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Spirit of God, give me 40 vision in your word today that I might know the heights, the depths, the length, and the breadth of your word in Jesus' name. Come on, high five two or three people. Amen? Amen, amen. So today's message, oh, by the way, so let's download... Um, Sermon by text and sermon at 602-393-1445. I updated it. Text slides at 602-393-1445. And you will have the updated version. Last week you got the whole two weeks, but I, I actually divided into two. So now you'll get it what's tailored for today. And again, it's called The Great Multitude and the Festival of Tabernacles. Amen? So let's recap. And... And I'm praying that as I begin to teach you today what we're talking about is that the spirit of revelation comes upon you and you fall in love with Jesus. Amen? The key to the book of Revelation, it's a divinely inspired outline, is found in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus said, write the things which thou hast seen. And there was a vision of Christ given to John. The second part of the book, Jesus says, and write the things which are, and that is the seven churches which we've covered and the third thing is the things which shall be hereafter are metatauta, hereafter the church age. And that's where we're at right now from chapter four on. It's after the church age. And there's a, again, there's a, this book is so beautiful. In fact, there's a special blessing on those who discover it and read it and discover the beauty and the majesty of it. That's why I call it God's magnum opus. There's actually a, a, set, a number seven outline of the book. You have the seven churches in chapters one through three. You have the seven sealed books, chapters four through five. You have the seven trumpets, chapters six and seven. You have the seven signs, chapters eight through 11. You have the seven last plagues, chapters 15 through 16. You have the seven dooms, chapters 17 through 20. And you have the seven new things, chapters 21 through 22. So let's recap a little bit about chapter seven. Chapter seven is parenthetical information and it's between the sixth and the seventh seal. The seventh seal is about to be released, and then God releases this additional information before he does it. In chapter 7, we were introduced to the 144,000. We went over that last week. They are Jewish males, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are sealed by God to be protected from the devastation of the four destructive winds, which I believe are the four horse of the apocalypse, which were just discussed before this happens. And God says, before these four winds are released, let's seal the 144,000 so that they cannot be touched by the devastation of these four destructive winds. So the context of these 144,000 in chapter 7, it indicates that they will serve the Lord as evangelists. And last week, I told you the miracle of this, because there will be 144,000 from each 12 tribes who will witness who, to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we found out that a little over 60 years ago, that wasn't even possible. 
because in, 19, in the 1940s, they did a poll. They couldn't find 12 Jewish Messianic believers in the 40s. Not 12. And then starting in 1967, I gave this history earlier last week, is now there's 1 million Messianic believers. What does that tell you? We're in the last days. In other words, God could easily pick 144,000 right now. We need to wake up. We need to get ready. You might want to do some rapture drills. Because one day you're going to jump, you're not coming back down. Amen? Hallelujah. So we covered that. That's the first half of chapter 7. And all of a sudden, we're introduced to this great multitude that comes from their witnessing. Let's look at Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 14. Let's hear it. I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Wow. The book of Revelation prophesies that there will be a worldwide revival in the last days. How many know that this is a battle for souls and God ain't losing? Come on. I know that's not proper English, but God is going to win the battle. And we find that there is a worldwide revival. Untold masses come to Christ because it says in verse 9 that it is, quote, a great multitude which no man can number. It's worldwide because the scripture declares in verse 9 that it involves, listen to this, quote, all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues. How many know the Bible does say, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh? One of the reasons why we at Radiant Life Church pray every Sunday night instead of going watching movies and doing that other than holidays and on Tuesday we get together by way of phone, our phone call, is because this is what I'm praying for. I'm actually, we are laying down the prayer, the altar of incense. We're allowing our prayers to rise as incense before God in preparation for the greatest Jesus movement of all times. And it will happen, Amen. The timing of this revival is the last days because the scripture declares in verse 14, these are they which came out of great tribulation. Isn't that crazy? You can either get saved now while it's easy or you can see the fulfillment and all the devastation and then you get saved because you realize, wow, what mother and pops, what Pastor Joseph said about the revelation, they're gone and it's happening and I've been left behind. You don't want to be left behind. I mean, I'm glad that this great revival takes place, but it takes place because of all the hard-headedness of people who would not listen. There will be a revival, and you'll have to lose your head literally for it. Hope you just heard what I said. 
The diversity before the throne worshiping God is evident that the Great Commission will be fulfilled before the end as Jesus promised in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, if you look at these people, they're dressed in white robes, which is the emblem of righteousness. They worship God with a song of salvation, quote, salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And they're holding palm branches. Palm branches in their hands are reminiscent of Jesus' triumphant entry in Jerusalem where Jesus was praised as Savior and King. Look at John chapter 12, 12 through 16. It says, And on that day, the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna means save now. Look at your neighbor and say, save now. They're actually celebrating the festival of tabernacles. And that was the liturgy or the songs that they would sing. They would sing Hosanna, save us. They would actually sing the Halas, Psalms 118. You can read Psalm 118. And they would get palm branches during this festival. And now we see them singing the same type of music, holding palm branches in heaven. What does that tell me? That in heaven, they're celebrating the festival of tabernacles. And to you, that might not be a big deal because you do not understand the revelation of it. That's why I'm here today. Because I'm going to break this down. Why are they celebrating the festival of tabernacles? Because it demonstrates so many prophetic truths that are happening in time at that moment. Are you hearing me? In fact, there are Jewish coins from the New Testament period um, and they were frequently um, decorated. I'm talking about the time when, when, when Jesus was around. And they were deco um, decorated with palms and inscriptions. In fact, many times inscription would say the redemption of Zion. And the palms, you can see on these coins here, were a picture of victory over evil. So know this. Here comes these people out of tribulation. They're holding palms. And you already know it means victory over what? Evil. And it's also an expression of great joy. Palms were an expression of great joy. In ancient times, palm branches were associated with the festival of tabernacles, like I said. And there's no doubt that they are celebrating the festival of tabernacles in heaven. God wants you to know it. and He want, But see, most people will read this, not even understand, oh, okay, there's 144,000, and miss the whole fact that God wants you to understand the festival of tabernacles so you understand prophetically what is happening at that very moment. Do you hear what I said? So let's go over the Festival of Tabernacles because they're celebrating in heaven. And by the way, in the Messianic Kingdom, in the millennium, we'll be still celebrating. It's in the scripture. I'll show it to you in a minute. So you better know what this is about. But 90, I'd say most Christians have no idea what the Festival of Tabernacles is. So take good notes. I'm going to go over it right now. The Festival of Tabernacles are booths. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. It's one of the seven holidays commanded by God which lasted seven days. How many days? In which Israel's men made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The people would make and live in temporary sukkahs, our huts, our booths, tents, whatever you want to call it. And they were made from branches of trees. And they had to daily wave what was known as the four species, also known as the lulav and the etrog, which you have pictures there. The festival of tabernacles, it commemorates the wilderness wanderings when Israel traveled in temporary tents or booths called Sukkot. While God traveled with his people also in his own tabernacle or tent called the Mishnah. 
So it's going back. It's like they got to remember, remember when we were in the wilderness and I traveled in your tent and you had your temporary tents. This is a celebration and a reminder of it. But it has not just a past remembrance, it's a future pointing to when we will dwell with God. Are you following? When we will tabernacle with the Lord. There's other names for Sukkot. One is Chag Hasaif. It means the festival of gathering. It represents a time to give thanks for the bounty of the earth during the fall harvest. So it was a celebration of, of the bounty of the fall harvest. Sukkot was also known as the Feast of Dedication. For it was on this day that Solomon concluded the dedication of the first temple. That's found in 2 Chronicles 7. Remember, I'm going to teach you the whole Bible using Revelation as my text. And during this festival dedication, which they celebrate every year, there was a custom of putting four lights in the midst of the temple during the festival. And it gave it the name, the Festival of Lights, because of the lights that they would light. Now, why is this important? Because it was on this day... that it was on this day of the festival that Jesus in John 8, 12 declared in the midst of these lights while people are looking the, and they're celebrating the festival of lights, they're looking at these four lights, that Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. So he clearly points to the festival tabernacles in the celebration of joy and the celebration of lights and claims that light, it represents me, the four corners of the earth of my light. Amen? So there's something he wants you to know about this. The festival of Sukkot is also described as the season of our joy. Why? Because Jesus Christ was born during this time and the declaration of the angels actually echoes the ancient liturgy of Sukkot. Look at Luke 2.10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Because the festival tabernacles was known as the time of joy. Again, because you got to know what it represents. It represents the future when God will dwell with his people. And so they were commanded to celebrate this with joy because it's a joyous occasion. It's what every believer cannot wait to see the face of their God. Amen. In fact, Sukkot, or Tabernacles, I'm going to give you both names so you get familiar. It is the only festival associated with an explicit explicit command to rejoice. They were commanded. And if you read the Mishnah, which is a commentary, old Jewish commentary, listen to what they said about celebrating Tabernacles in Jesus' day. Devout men and men of good deeds would dance before them with flaming torches that were in their hands and would utter before them words of songs and praises. And the Levites with harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and countless musical instruments stood on the 15 steps that descended from the court of the Israelites to the women's court, corresponding to the 15 songs of ascent in Psalms. And then notice what it says. It continues on. They said, whoever did not see the rejoicing of Beit Hashoah never saw rejoice in his lifetime. God commanded them to celebrate with joy. They went all out with dancing, music. They had torches. I mean, they wanted you to know this is a happy time. And they said, no one, in fact, history records, we just read it, that you have not seen joy until you saw the Jews celebrate this festival. Why would they celebrate with so much joy? Because it represents, again, I'm going to keep telling you, Festival Tabernacle represents God dwelling with men in the past, but also it's our future. Amen. Now, during the seven days of this festival, Israel was commanded to take up the four species. In in, um, Aramaic, it's called the Arba Menim, are the four kinds. It's also known as the Lulav and the Etrog. And they were commanded every day of the festival to wave or shake them. Depends upon how you describe it. Look at Leviticus 2340. And you shall take on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of the palm trees, 
the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Notice the word rejoice. So check this out. The first three elements, the branches of the date palm tree, along with the twigs of the myrtle and the willows are bound together, and it's collectively called the lulav. And then the fourth is what they call the etrog, or citron, they call it in, in, in Israel. It's similar to a lemon in appearance. In a, it has a sweet-smelling citrus smell, and it's grown in Israel. And I got to tell you, it is the most unusual ritual that you would hold these three types of leaves bound together, and, and you'd hold that in your right hand, and then you'd get the etrog, or the lemon-looking fruit, and you'd put them together, and you were commanded to do a blessing, and you were commanded to weigh them before the Lord every day. So with the lulav in the right hand and the etrog in the left hand, they're held it together. They're shaken three times in six directions. So it's very specific. Right, left, forward, behind, up and down. So in six directions. Why? Because this ritualized movement is meant to draw blessings from all the corners of the earth and send blessing to all of creation. Listen how deep this is. Even Rabbi Avrim Aria Trugman connects the practice of the, of the shaking of the lulav and the etrog to Einstein's elusive unified field theory. Quote, by shaking the four species outward to the six directions of space and then bringing them back to our hearts, we unify and sanctify space within time. That's deep. And one of the reasons why I think so, because I think they understand that, oh my Lord, as you practice this, and they do it every year, they still do, and we'll be doing it in the future, is that you're coming in out of time of prophetic utterances. You're unifying it. Did you hear what I just said? You're actually taking things from the past, present, and future and bringing it all together in one celebration of past, present, and future prophetic utterances. This is heavy stuff. So, I mean, so you look at this. What is this etrog? And what is this three leaves, our, our branches bound together? What does it represent? Why do I have to wave it in six directions three times every day? And by the way, on the seventh day, you had to do it eight times. I mean, seven times, excuse me. So one day each six days on the seventh, how many times do you have to do it? Seven times, six directions. Well, let me tell you what the rabbis believe it means. This is fascinating. Are you ready? They say that the four species are related to the organs of the human body. The shape of the myrtle leaf is like the eye. It's a symbol of enlightenment. The shape of the willow leaf is like the lips, the instruments of praise and prayer. The palm branch is like the spine, which carries the brain's instructions to the rest of the body and symbolizes uprightness. The etrog, that fruit, is like the heart, the place of true understanding and wisdom. And here's what they taught. Each of these parts of our body, if you will, are capable of being used to do wrong or right, but combined in the service of God, they have great redemptive power. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul declares. Let's go to Romans 6, 12 through 3. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Paul said that, that your body can be used to yield to sin and bring great destruction, or you can yield it to God and bring fruit of righteousness, untold um, amounts of blessing. So therefore, listen to this. 
As one waves the lulav before God at Sukkot and the Etrog, it is symbolic. Listen to this. It's a symbolic action of presenting your whole body to him as a living sacrifice. That's what that represents. Isn't that beautiful? That I can yield myself to the enemy, but I choose to yield myself to God in every direction of my life. No matter where I go, I'm surrendered to God. Are you following me? In other words, not just when I go forwards, but when I go backwards, I'm a devil. Come on. <laughs> Means every direction of my life is yielded to the Holy Ghost. Does that make sense? There's another interpretation. Listen to this. This is beautiful. That the etrog and the lulav represents the different types of people in Israel. There's four different types. The etrog, with its taste and pleasant smell, it's like one who combines the knowledge of the Torah with good deeds. In other words, you don't just know the five books of Moses, but you actually apply it. The date palm produces good food, but it has no fragrance. So they compare it to someone who knows the Torah, but has no good deeds. How many know people who know the Bible, but don't practice it? Okay. The myrtle, which has a fragrant aroma, but no taste, is like one who does good deeds without Torah knowledge. Isn't it funny? I'll never forget when I was working at this expensive restaurant, one of the most moral people that I met, I was only 18 at the time, and it shocked me. She was so moral, and she was the only one that was an atheist in the whole place. And she outdid all the Christians in that place, trust me. Isn't it amazing how some people don't know the Word of God, but they operate in principles like they know the Word of God better than people who do sometimes? And then you have the willow. It's tasteless. It's odorless. It's like one who's without Torah or good deeds. They don't have any of it. But here's what they say about that. This is amazing. However, when bound together as a community, these people, intent on serving God, the strengths of one covers for the weakness of another, and therefore God receives them all. Did you just hear what I said? In other words, even in this church, there's, there's four of those people here. And no matter what level you're at, when we all come together, God takes it combined, unifies it, and it becomes like a sweet fragrance and he receives all of us despite our ignorance. Come on, that's something to clap about. In other words, you see God's grace, right? And they're waving this in heaven. In other words, I know there's some people who receive Jesus at their deathbed. Come on, talk to me. There's some people who, they loved God, but they could never get it right. And there's some people, man, they got it. I mean, they're just good people. Some people are like that. They just have it like that. But when you put them all together, come on. God receives them all because it's one sweet sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? There's a lot in this. So when they're waving that palm branch, you got to understand what they're waving and what it represents so you can say, hallelujah, I think I'm that one that, I know your word, Lord, but I'm struggling. But guess what? God receives it all. That's good news. Because we all strive for perfection, but very few of us can ever get it. On the seventh day of Tabernacles or Sukkot, write this down. It was called Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana Rabbah. Just the way it sounds, Hoshana Rabbah. Are they called it the taking of the willow? That's what in English it means, the taking of the willow. It's where they would take large 18-foot willow branches and they would set it around the altar every day of Sukkot. They'd get these big willow branches. And remember, there were sacrifices they would make. So the priests would put these big willow branches and cover the altar. I want you to get a picture of that, covering the altar. They would do that. Every day for seven days. But you need to understand is why, remember, everything that God is doing, he's coming in and out of time. He's trying to show you something. 
Why would they get this altar and literally dress it up in clothes, if you will, with willow branches? Because that altar represented Jesus. Did you hear what I just said? There's no doubt this altar covered with willow branches is symbolic of Christ who tabernacled among us and became our sacrifice. Look at John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 14 says, and he dwelt among us. The Hebrew word is tabernacled. That's not an accident. I mean, the Greek word is tabernacled. That's not an accident. Just like God had a tent where he would manifest his glory, but it was hidden. Only the high priest could really see the glory because only he was allowed in there. It says Jesus tabernacled. He put on clothes. He put it on a tent to hide the glory of who he was. Are you following me? So when you see people putting these big willow leaves over the altar, that altar represents Jesus. And they're, they're putting on a tent, uh, our willow leaves, so that he can dwell among us, so that he can tabernacle with us. Are you following me? In fact, in the temple on, Rosh, uh, on, on Hoshana Rabbah, there was this magnificent ceremony, listen to this, called the House of the Water Porn, in which the high priest would fill a golden vessel with living water. Listen to this, living water, it's called living water. And his assistant would fill a vessel with wine, the priest with the sacrifice would ascend the altar, placing the animals on the fire. Those with the willows circled the altar on Hoshana Rabbah. Remember, every day they did it one time. On this day, guess what? They would circle the altar seven times. I hope you're listening to the details here. Then they would lay the willows against the base of the altar, forming a sukkah or a tent over the, its top. And here's what they would quote, Psalm 118.25. Save now, O beseech thee. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, I beseech thee, and now prosperity. So they're looking at this altar that's got clothes on, if you will, and they're quoting, save me, save me, altar. Why? Because prophetically, who does it represent? The Messiah to come. I'm about to get deep on here. On the first six days of Sukkot, the priest would circle the altar only once, and then on the seventh day, they were commanded to go around seven times. And here's the part I was going to skip, but I can't. Because you cannot look at this and not something come to mind. Your children's basic Bible study should come to mind when you see people for six days marching around an altar. And then on the seventh day, they do it seven times. What comes to your mind? Joshua and the march were absolutely. God wants you to think of that because the march around Jericho was them doing the festival of tabernacles in, in hiding, in concealment. Because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament what? Revealed. So I was going to skip there. I go, I can't. Because this is what they're doing in heaven. And you got to know these details. Why? In fact, you can read about it in Joshua 6, 15 through 16, where they were commanded, I'm gonna, just going to read it. And it came to pass on the seventh day they rose about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass, ooh, this is good, at the seventh time when the priest blew with the what? By the way, you know how many trumpets they blew? That should give you a hint why they're practicing tabernacles in between the fifth are the sixth and the seventh seal. Maybe I gave you too much right there. 
because the book of Joshua is an outline of the book of Revelation. It's the book of Revelation given in the book of the Old Testament so you would have it encoded. What do you mean? Well, do you ever notice that the book of Joshua starts off with a whore called Rahab the harlot? And she has this scarlet thread. Revelation 17, there's a whore with red scarlet. Come on, talk to me. The great city is appointed to fall before Joshua. Or like the city of Babylon is, is scheduled to fall before Jesus. Before it falls, they have to send two witnesses. Come on, talk to me. Have you read the book of Revelation? We haven't got there yet. It's an outline of the whole book of, of Revelation. Then there's the appearance of divine commander with a sword coming from heaven. We, you'll read, we'll read about that in the book of Revelation. And then they sound seven trumpets. And then you have the rescue of the family of faith before the city is destroyed as the people of God receive their inheritance. Isn't that what we see in the book of Revelation? Before all this happens, God, we see the people, the church in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And the church is represented Rahab and her family. You say, but she's a whore. Yeah, but she's saved by grace through faith like the rest of us. Doesn't matter what your position is. If you come to Christ, you become righteous. And he spares their lives while the destruction hits. Are you following me? So the tabernacles definitely has a reference in Joshua and that they march around the city. What? How many times? One time. And on the seventh day, how many times? The same thing they would do with the willow branches at the altar. Why? Because I wanted you to understand that there's a tie here. Some rabbis suggest that the Hoshanah ritual of, of going around the altar seven times on the seventh day, that it's a summoning ritual. Listen to this. You're summoning for God's presence to manifest so that we can make a request. In other words, they have to do this march around because they're doing a summoning ritual. In other words, they're doing a ritual that makes God respond to prayer. And they're doing it in heaven, and God wants you to notice this. So let me give you the interpretation. The interpretation of this marching around seven times is so that it's representing the manifestation of God dwelling with his people in a new beginning. It represents, I just said a lot there, it represents God manifesting among his presence among his people in a new beginning. Why? They marched around how many, how many days? Seven. Each day represents a thousand years. See, I'm not I'm told you, you need to understand. It's more than, they're not just marching around, so we go, oh, look at them marching around. No. Each day represents what? Second Peter 3.8. Put that down in your notes. So when they're doing it in the days of Joshua, they're out of time. And then when you see it in the book of Revelation, they're doing this, which we're reading right now. They're coming in and out of time, but it's all fulfillment of one promise, the manifestation of God's presence among his people. I'm not done yet. Why 7,000 years? Because rabbis taught that there would be 6,000 years of man's history. You can find that in Genesis 1.1. I don't have time to break it down for you, but they believe men's history would be only 6,000 years. By the way, from Adam to Jesus was 4,000 years. From Jesus to now is almost what? 2000. We're almost coming to the end of man's history. They taught that the seventh day 
which might be 2032 in my book, in my mind, would be the millennium reign of the Messiah. It's a day long because it's a thousand years. And we read in, in the book of Revelation that the seventh day are, there is a millennium reign, right? Are you following me? The eighth day, which would be a thousand years after the seventh thousandth year. Are you ready? The eighth day. It would move us into all things new. Because eight is the, is the number of what? New beginnings. Follow me what's going on with this ritual in heaven and what's taking place in Joshua. The seven circular completion represents the introduction to the eighth day when God makes all things new. They're summoning for God's presence. And when they do that seven, it represents 7,000 years of history. Why seven? Because now seven, it's been completed. Now what we've all wanted is about to manifest the unification of God's saints, of God's saints with the Lord himself. Isn't that beautiful? Look at Revelation 21.5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. This is on the eighth day, according to the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's even making a new heaven and a new earth. All things are new. Pastor, when does that happen? It so happens to be exactly after the millennium of Christ, the seventh day. Beginning on the eighth day, new beginnings. And then marching around that altar seven times represents the completion of man's history. And you're supposed to celebrate with joy because the greatest event is about to happen. Isn't that beautiful? So isn't it interesting that we know that Joshua, when this, before the city came down on the seventh day, he marched around the city seven times. But he blew how many trumpets? Isn't it fascinating that it's in chapter 7 that they're practicing the in heaven the festival of tabernacles, marching around the altar seven times in heaven, right? And it just so happens they're in between the sixth and the seventh seal. That's what chapter 7 is. Because right when chapter 8 begins, the seventh seal releases seven trumpets. Do you get that? In other words, they're practicing the Festival of Tabernacles to let you know seven trumpets are about to come. Oh, this is good. Some of you, I know right now, your head's kind of spinning. Go back and play it over and over. This is absolutely amazing. It's not, in other words, God wants you to think of Joshua because seven trumpets were released at that time, and that's what he's about to do in the next chapter, release seven trumpets on the seventh seal. See, but some of you just read and just hear, oh, the 144,000. There's a lot more than that, brother. In fact, the high priest on this day of Hoshana Rabbah and the assistant, remember they had the living water and they also had the wine? They would ascend the altar and they would pour out water and wine while the people sang Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. So they're dropping this water and this wine out of these silver and gold vessels on this altar, which I already told you it represents. And in the days of Jesus, when they were celebrating this, Jesus interrupts the service. You want to read it? Look at John 7, 30, 70, 38, so you know I'm not making this up. And in the last day, in what last day? Talking about the last day, Roshana, Rabbah, on the Festival of Tabernacles, while they're pouring this out, he decides to comment. 
That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Oh, my God. So here, they're marching around this altar seven times. And then they get this, these vessels of gold and silver, and they're pouring what they call living water because it came from the pool of Shalom. And they're pouring this water, and they're pouring that wine. Jesus comes to interrupt them. What? Wait a minute. Anyone who serves me can have this living water, and it will come from your belly, welling up into everlasting life. So there's no doubt Jesus did an illustrated sermon pointing. That altar, that pouring, that's me. And they've been doing this for thousands of years. By the way, the word festival in Hebrew means to practice, to rehearse. They were, they've been rehearsing thousands of years, still doing it for the fulfillment of this. Here's what's even more interesting to show you that this altar is Jesus. At the end of the ritual of decorating the altar with the willow branches, putting clothes on it, that's the way I put it, they would personify the altar. In fact, I read the Jewish commentaries, and they don't understand it because they don't understand it's talking about Jesus. But they had to talk to the altar like it was a person. In fact, here's a quote. As the people leave, they say, how beautiful you are, altar. How beautiful you are. And even Rabbi Eliezer says, he and you, altar. He and you, altar. They had to talk to it. And they had to say, you're beautiful, altar. You're beautiful. Isn't that amazing? Calling the altar beautiful. They had to use that language. You're so beautiful. Kind of reminds me of that old song, and I have a sore throat. But, it, you know, it's from the scripture. Do you all remember that song? Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. And your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. Oh, Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burned with holy fear. I did that. This is what they had to do to the altar. They sang those type of songs, same scripture. Who are they talking about? Jesus. Even today, if you go to a synagogue, Jewish synagogue, Hoshana Rabbah, they celebrate it. Let's check this out. The person leading the service wears a white robe. Okay, in heaven, what are they wearing? The Torah scrolls are taken out of their place and they're held by people standing around the Torah reading table. The congregation then makes seven circuits around the, the, the Torah reading table while reciting the Hoshanot prayers with the four kinds in their hand, shaking them. While making the circuit, an alphabetic acrostic prayer is recited responsibly. Each phrase in the prayer begins and ends with the words Hoshana, which means save. So even today in the synagogue, they're singing the same songs. They're doing the same things. 
at the, but they do something interesting that they didn't do in the early days. Listen to this. This is amazing. At the conclusion of the, oh, by the way, on the seventh day, they march around that thing seven times with the, with the Taurus girls. That's how they do it today. But at the conclusion of this service, this is interesting. The people take a bundle of five willows with it, and they strike the ground five times. They take five willows, and they beat it on the ground. They say it symbolizes the tempering of the five measures of harshness. I tried to look it up. I don't even know what that means. But the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He says, son, it represents the five places of Jesus' body abused for our redemption. Two hands, two feet, one head. That's why it was beaten. Pretty, pretty intense, right? In other words, he's our altar. He's our sacrifice. He was abused so that we could be reunited with God in the future. So the prophetic significance of the Festival of Tabernacles is the coming together of the Jews and Gentiles, specifically on one man in the, king, in the Messianic kingdom. I don't know if you know this, but Gentiles are everyone who's not Jewish. And before Christ came, we were divided. Only the Jews had salvation. Gentiles didn't. The Festival of Tabernacles, watch this, is a celebration of the Gentiles and Jews coming together as one man under Christ Jesus. I hope you realize that. Then you understand all of chapter 7, which starts with 144,000 Jews, then comes after them without number Gentiles. Are you following me? Look at in Ephesians 2, 11 through 15. There's so much in this. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Go to verse 14. For he is our peace, Jesus, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, talking about Jews and Gentiles, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. God's ultimate goal was to bring Jews and Gentiles together through Christ who allowed his body to be broken so that we could be put together. This is power. Yeah, this is good stuff. It's fascinating. It's only during the festival of tabernacles out of the whole seven that God gives. On this day, 70 sacrifices were offered on this day. 70. Only time we're in 70. You know why? Because each sacrifice represented one of the 70 known nations of the world at that time. The other six festivals focused on Israel alone. There's nothing about Gentiles in it. This festival portrays the time that God would rule over the world. Look at Zechariah 14.9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, not just Jews, all the earth and Gentiles. In that day, there should be one Lord and his name one. So in the Messianic kingdom, all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem Yearly for the keeping of the festival, even you. That's why I'm training you now. So when God says, hey, when Jesus comes, he says, hey, do you have your etrog and lulav? You're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Because in the millennium kingdom, we're going to be practicing. You're saying, why? Because it's a fulfillment. It represents when God gets his whole children, Jew and Gentile, together. And the celebration of the, of the festival tabernacle with joy and the march around represents the fulfillment through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Zechariah 14, play it. Listen to this. You'll hear it. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king 
the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Isn't that heavy? That's talking about after he returns and he appears with his wounds and he says all the nations he will rule and they will have to do one festival and visit Jerusalem called the Festival of Tabernacles and those who do not come up, come up and celebrate, God will send a curse to that nation, a plague. So can you imagine in that time you're coming and God says, all right, get your lulav and eat right. What's that, Lord? You know how many ignorant Christians are? That's why I'm teaching you this. So in other words, it may seem like, oh, this is a waste. No, it's not a waste. This has so much symbolic revelation to it that even the offering of that represents you offering yourself as a living sacrifice before the Lord seven times because it represents complete sacrifice, complete surrender, but it also represents 7,000 years of history that will, in that time, it will be the seventh day. After that, when it's completed, we go to the eighth, which is the new beginning, a new heaven, a new earth. See, all this is being, that's, when you're reading this chapter, that's what it's, it's showing you. You're supposed to know your history so you know what's going on here. So the great multitude wearing white in chapter 7, holding palm branches, singing songs of God's great salvation, and being led by the Lamb to fountains of living water later on in the chapter, this speaks loud of the festival of tabernacles. Revelation 7 begins with 144,000 redeemed Jewish believers followed by the great multitude from around the whole world. And it shows the prophetic fulfillment feature of the festival of tabernacles of Jew and Gentiles coming together as one man in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Has this happened yet? No. But they, we practice it every year. The Jews do. They're practicing it in heaven. That's why, I mean, it's, and then they were practicing it at the time of Joshua. God's coming in and out of time to show you that one day all of the believers are going to come together. And he'll wipe every tear from your eye. Oops, I just got ahead of myself. At this time, let's go to verse 11 through 12. At the revelation of the multitude, the angels begin to get excited after they sing their song of salvation. Remember, we just read earlier at the beginning how this multitude singing the song of salvation unto our God. Listen to how the angels respond. And all the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts. And they fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and praise and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. So after the great multitude sings their song of salvation, verse 10, the angels, the 24 elders, the four living creatures respond with a song of what? Sevenfold blessing. Notice there's seven words to this song. It's an affirmation of what the great multitude had just sung. They just sung about this great salvation of God. And they confirm it with their own song. They say blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, strength. 
Why? Again, because it's completion. And did you notice that the seven blessing that they sing begins and ends with amen? Why? The word amen means it is the truth. The word amen means so be it, let it be. This is good stuff. All this that's going on in the heavens in chapter 7, the singing of the multitude, the revelation of the 144,000, then the angels, the living creatures, and the 24 elders singing their own song, the sevenfold blessing. All this has one focus. It has one direction and one and only one deserving object. Quote, it says, unto our God forever and ever. Amen. All this is about God. He's the centerpiece. He's the focus. And then if you want to know who the great multitude is, look at Revelation 7, 13 through 14. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? So John himself didn't even know who these people were. He's asking, hey, what's going on here? And I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So... These are, they, these are those who have been saved during the Great Tribulation. In other words, they're mostly all martyrs. A martyr is someone who dies for their faith. So this great multitude, they're going to die. Those in this great multitude are all saved just like everybody else by the blood of the Lamb according to the Scripture. Isn't it interesting that it says that they are made white by blood? How many know that if you got blood, you don't become white? You'd become red. But the scripture says that they became white by blood. This is truly, you have to understand the scripture to know what he's saying here. Isaiah 118. He's quoting 118. It says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as what? This is a reference that through the blood of Jesus, your sins are dark, but God makes them white. He erases. He makes you white as snow. White represents righteousness. Now, you know what's interesting? Again, so it says these multitudes who came out of great tribulation died for their faith. They're made white by blood. Isaiah, we just read it. That though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. Again, I can't leave that there because it's another reference to that scripture is a reference to another ritual called the two goats, which was done on the Day of Atonement. You want me to give you the reference so you can write it down? It's Leviticus 16, 7 through 10. There was a ritual that they did three days before the Festival of Tabernacles. It was called the Day of Atonement. This is the only time when the high priest was allowed to enter into the tabernacle or into the temple, and he could go into the holy place, and he would see the glory of God only once a year. In fact, if he didn't do it exactly right, he would die. In fact, they used to tie a rope on his leg on that day, and they had bells that would ding, 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 and the bells start, stop ringing, that means he was dead, and they would pull him out. Okay, let's get a new high priest. Are you following me? Because this was the day where God was going to forgive the sins of all mankind. It's called the Day of Atonement. 
But there was something they were commanded to do. They were commanded to bring two goats before them. And they were supposed to do lots. They would, they would, they would gamble to decide which goat was which. One goat was called the goat of the Lord. The other goat was called the goat of Azazel, or Satan. And they came before, and these two goats are going to redeem Israel. And immediately, you should see the prophetic picture. It's a picture of Jesus and Barabbas. Are you following me? So they bring these two goats. This is where the whole term scapegoat comes from. I don't mean to be so detailed, but I realize a lot of us are ignorant. And you don't see the significance of being white by blood. This is what they're talking about. What they would do is they would take three scarlet um, um, yarns, if you will, or ribbons. And they would tie one to the goat for the Lord on his horn. And the one who was the goat of Satan, they would tie it around his neck. And then the last scarlet thread, 18 inches long, they would tie it to the temple door. What they would do with the, the goat of the Lord, they would sacrifice it and it represented, they would sacrifice it for the priests and the sins of the people. The other goat, they would spit on it. They would call it names because isn't that what they did to Jesus? And then they would release it. Kind of like Barabbas was what? Released. But are you ready for this? This is the part most people don't know. A lot of people think that goat was just released and that's it. Nope. Once they would release that goat, there was someone called a strong man. Kind of interesting. The strong man would get the goat, the one that was released, and he'd walk him to a big cliff, and he'd push him over the cliff so that he would die. Now, why did he have a scarlet thread tied around him? Because if he did not die, it's a cursed goat, and if someone took that goat, they were bringing on the curses of the people. So they would know, oh, no, don't touch that goat. But most of the time it died. When you push a goat over a cliff, it's going to die. Are you ready for this? Hope you're taking good notes. On that day, according to all history of the Jews, remember there was one scarlet ribbon that was tied on the temple door, right? The moment, the moment that that goat who was pushed over the cliff fell down and died, that thing would turn from red to white. And they knew that their sins were forgiven. That is what it's talking about. It says, though your sins be as scarlet, it should be white as snow. It's a reference to the scapegoat. That the moment, go ahead, give God a big hand. So literally, that thing would turn, go from red to what? And it meant their sins have been forgiven. You know what's crazy about that? The Jews record in their history, the, the, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Jesus was crucified in 33 AD. They said something unusually, something unusual happened with this scarlet thread. That 40 years before the destruction of the temple was the first time it stopped turning white. And it hadn't done it for 40 years up to the destruction of the temple. Put it together. That's because Jesus had died and come, and now that miraculous thing stopped because he was the scarlet thread. Are you following me? So even in their history, they quote that after Jesus died, it stopped turning white. What does this great multitude do? I'm going to take five more minutes. It says they serve God day and night. How many know that when you go to heaven, you ain't just going to sit with a little guitar and sing all day? There's work to do. Some people are so lazy, they make the Bible and make it like you're just sitting there singing all day. God has more for you to do than just sing him songs. Come on, talk to me. It says they serve him day and night. 
Don't be lazy even in heaven. Come on. There's things to do. The great multitude received seven blessings. And they're listed. I don't think it's an accident. Again, seven. Remember, they marched around seven. Here they are. Number one, he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. You know, it's beautiful. If you read the amplified version, it says, he who sitteth upon the throne will protect and spread his tabernacle over and shelter them with his presence. So God's presence will become their canopy of shelter to protect them, is what the little Greek says, from all the terrors of fallen world and the indescribable horrors they have experienced on earth during the time of great tribulation. Isn't it fascinating that they're celebrating tabernacles in heaven, and that's the word that's said, that God will spread his garment over them and tabernacle them, shelter them. That's one of their blessings because they had been tormented and tortured. says, now you're under the shadow of my wings. Isn't that beautiful? Number two, it says, they shall hunger no more. Number three, in verse 16, it says, neither will they thirst anymore. Number four, it says, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. In other words, they won't need air conditioning. They won't need a heat. They won't need cooling because God will breathe their tabernacle, perfect temperature all the time. Number five, it says, the lamb shall feed them. Isn't that interesting? They're cared for by the lamb who is also their shepherd. What a paradox. It's a beautiful paradox. The lamb is the ultimate shepherd. Isaiah 40, 11 says, and he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom. And he shall gently lead those that are with young. Number six, it says, for the lamb shall lead them into living fountains of water. This is their sixth blessing. Again, remember, this ties to the tabernacles, the living water on the altar, all that. Number seven, it says, this is the part I love. You're going to love this. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The point is that the grief and tears of the past, the speaking of their trials and tribulations, will be over when they get to heaven. God will wipe away all tears resulting from their suffering on earth. I've been through some things, and I know you've been through things, and I've said some stupid things like, man, I can't wait to go to heaven. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why I went through this, why I went through that. And one day the Holy Spirit spoke to me, no, you're not. You're just going to be happy to be there. Who cares? It's done. Why do you want God to waste 2,000, you know, you know, two minutes of time just to tell you why you went through this? Who cares? It's over. Enjoy your mansion. Walk on the gold. Enjoy the, your superpowers and fly somewhere. Amen. There's something I got to show you that the Lord showed me, and it's this little dessert on top. Are you ready? So you see the introduction of the 144,000. And it's crazy because from this 144,000 comes this great multitude. It's like God doing things over again because he started with 12 disciples and Christianity spread. But in the last days, he's going to do 12 times 12,000, and the whole world is going to get saved. Are you following me? At least a great multitude all over the world. So he's going to do it again. But according to Sheree Abbott of Reasons for Hope, this is amazing. There's an encoded message in that list. In Revelation 7, 4 through 8, the 12 tribal leaders are mentioned in this order. Judah, which means praise the Lord. Reuben, his name means he has looked on my affliction. Gad. Good fortune comes. And if you notice, it's not in the order of their birth. So God obviously wants you to notice something. He wants you to notice it's not in the order. 
but he put in this order so you can have an encoded message. You see, Asher, happy and blessed am I. Naphtali means my wrestling. Manasseh means has made me forget my sorrows. Simeon, God hears me. Levi means has joined me. Issachar rewarded me. Zebulun means exalted me. Joseph means added to me. Benjamin means the son of his right hand. And God so wants you to understand that it's encoded that he even left some names out. Remember Dan? And he put other names in there. Instead of Manasseh, or, or, instead of Ephraim, excuse me, it says Joseph. Well, read it in Hebrew. Are you ready? And it makes sense because they're celebrating the Festival of Tabernacles. And here's what God's encoded message in the 12 tribes says. Praise the Lord. He has looked on my affliction and good fortune comes. Happy and blessed am I. My wrestling has made me forget my sorrows. God hears me, has joined me, rewarded me, and exalted me by adding to me the son of his right hand. Come on. That's what the whole festival of tabernacles about is being joined together because of the son of his right hand. I love the word of God. Come on, stand up. Isn't that beautiful? God is awesome. And, and I apologize if, if you don't understand what I'm saying because this is, was a very difficult subject. And I had to break it down so you can understand it. How many of you feel like you at least understand it better than you did before? Good. Amen. Amen. We pray for all those that are here, Lord, that are separate from their family. They feel alone or maybe they have no one to celebrate. Lord, I pray for them that you'd be their mother, that you'd be their father. For you're a father to the orphan. You're a husband to the widow. Or you're a brother to them who have no brother. Father, we release your presence to heal their hearts, to heal their minds. I speak healing in each and every one of the people that have walked up here. I release the healing power of God. And I just speak blessing, peace, joy over every person in this place. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you. And everybody said... We thank you for your participation in another broadcast of A Radiant Moment. This broadcast is brought to you by the generous giving and donations of our listening audience. If this program has been a blessing to your life, you can help us expand our listening audience by giving a financial donation at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Simply click the online giving tab and fill out the amount God has placed in your heart. For service times, live streaming, and location, visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Tune in next time as we bring another relevant and radiant word for your life today. Until next time, and remember, God loves you.